0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 4, and we'll read from verse 21. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade and then the ear and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, what With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make their nest in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> One of the benefits of, <clears throat> of working through a book of the Bible is that we get the opportunity to really get into the details and, and begin to see, you know, begin to connect all of the, the pieces together you get to dive into the story and see how one event influences, you know, the other uh events and and you get to see how each verse of scripture, right, or how they're all part of a connected whole. And, and and as you do that, you begin to get a sense of what the author of the text intended to communicate to the original audience. And and this is this is so important because when we come to a verse of scripture, the first question we sh- you know, that we ask, shouldn't be, what does this verse mean to me? The question actually instead should be, what does this verse actually mean? Like, what, what, did, what did God intend for it to mean? Not what I think, not what I feel about it, right? But what what is God, the author, actually communicating to his original audience, you know, the, the, the audience that the text was written to? Because the reality is, right, what it means to us personally is really irrelevant if what it means to us doesn't line up with what God intended for it to mean in the original context, which is part of a larger whole. The fact is that the Christian faith is not a faith that's built on standalone verses or a series of standalone sections of verses isolated from their context as some people would suppose that it is. Now, don't get me wrong. I want you to hear me on this, okay? You absolutely, without question, can explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone by walking people through several individual scriptures. You don't have to read to them the entire Bible for them to understand that they were made in the image of God. You don't have to read the entire Bible to them for them to understand that that image was tarnished by sin and that they are now by nature the children of wrath. You don't have to read the entire Bible for them to understand that because of their sin, they are under the condemnation of the wrath of God without any hope, that, they, can make, make, uh, that he, they could fix this on their own. And so in essence, they're hopeless, right? But because of God's love and his sheer grace and his mercy, he sent his son into the world. Being fully God and fully man, he lived a perfect life that you couldn't live, and he went to the cross to pay a penalty that you couldn't pay. And on that cross, he traded places with you, bearing in his body your sin and the wrath of God, and then returning to you the righteousness that you would need to stand before God as part of his family. And Jesus, he died, he was put into the grave, and three days later, he rose again, proving that he is exactly what he claimed to be, right? And, and, and that your debt has been paid, the, the, the payment for your debt has been accepted by God, and Jesus now is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf, And all you have to do to receive eternal life is repent and believe the gospel and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, leading you and guiding you and changing you into the image of Christ, bearing witness that you belong to God and are firmly in his hand. You do not have to read to someone the entire Bible to explain that to them. All you need to do is walk them through the various scriptures of the Bible to tell them these things. But what we need to understand is that, and certainly what we need to hold firm to, is that all those individual scriptures, right, all of those references, what they actually mean is actually rooted in the context of the books they come from. The meaning of every single verse is rooted in its context. Every verse of scripture has a context. And because of that, then, our theology or our understanding of who God is and how he saves people must simply be based not on isolated scriptures that are plucked out of context and strung together, but, but rather they, we must seek to understand the context and connect all of the dots and understand each verse in the place that it comes from in its literary context. And it's immediate in historical context. Simply put, we need to seek to allow Scripture to speak for itself. Because it's the very words of God. We must seek to understand what God is actually intending to communicate through His Word. And so walking then through a book of the Bible and, and really paying close attention to the details gives us an opportunity to do just that as we have seen so far Because what we've seen so far in the book of Mark is that there is a consistent theme and and there is a definite direction that, that, that the gospel is going. And again, we can see that. In fact, let me just summarize this for you and what I'm talking about. Mark opens up the gospel declaring who Jesus is, that he is the son of God and a claim that Jesus then makes over and over and over again in the story. And then Jesus emerges from the wilderness after being tempted by Satan preaching the gospel, the good news, throughout Galilee, and he calls people to repentance and faith, and, and, and Jesus said, he goes, the, the time is now, the kingdom is, is here, repent and believe in the gospel. And then Jesus demonstrates that he is who he claims to be, the son of God, right? And that, and that this message of hope and, and the call to repent and believe are authoritative, right? And, he, and the reason why they're authoritative because he proves his power by doing incredible miracles. He casts out demons, even demons that acknowledge who he is. He heals people of all kinds of diseases and, and deformities and infirmities. And, and Jesus does these incredible miracles that, that no one, not, not anyone, not even his enemies can deny his power. And, and people then as a result of his preaching and his miracles respond to him either by believing or by rejecting his message. Some people believe it and some people don't. In fact, even people like his family Think that he's crazy, and other people think that he's he's doing miracles by by the power of the devil. They think he's demon-possessed. And Jesus makes it clear that those who believe and do the will of God are part of God's family. And those who don't, and, and those who reject him, are outsiders to God's family, even if they're physically related to him. And what we come to understand is the reason why people reject or accept the message of Christ isn't about their intelligence. It's not about their station in life. It's not about their genetics or their hereditary. It's not even about the evidence because the evidence, if you think about it, is just overwhelming. The things that Jesus is doing is absolutely mind boggling. The difference simply is the condition of a person's heart. The condition of a person's heart determines how they're gonna respond to the gospel. Belief or unbelief, right, is connected to the heart condition And last week, we talked about how Jesus taught that very concept, that a person's response to the gospel and the word of God is directly related to the existing condition of that person's heart. Jesus said that a person whose heart is hard will reject the gospel out of hand, proving that they are absolutely unbelievers, because... Because, because that's just what hard-hearted people do. They just reject the gospel. But then you have people who have superficial hearts, who have a shallow faith, who it says that receive the word with great joy, but when life gets hard, they fall away, rejecting their faith, altogether proving that they didn't have a saving faith. And then you have those who have a distracted heart, who hear the word of God, receive it, but the cares of the world and the selfish desires of their hearts choke it out, So that the word of God bears no fruit in their life, proving that they're still outsiders and not part of God's family. And then you have people who have soft, furlough hearts. And the seed of God's word takes root and it grows up and it bears much fruit, proving that this person's faith was real and authentic. And, And as we talked about, the soil of a person's heart, you know... The, the, the soil of this person who has has good soil in their heart it is good, not because it occurs naturally in themselves, it occurs because because God has made it ready to receive the Word of God. God is the one who changed their heart because only God can change a person 's heart, only God can make a person's heart soft. God is the one who loosens the hard soil with a plow of conviction and removes. From, from them the heart of stone and puts in them the heart of flesh. God is the one who prepares the soil, and when the seed of the word falls into that changed heart, and then it grows up and bears fruit of salvation. And through this beautiful illustration that we saw last week, what we come to understand is that God is sovereign even over salvation. That salvation is 100% the work of God. It is not the work of men. It is not the work of angels. It is the work of God because, because those who receive the word of God, those who believe, do so because God has changed their heart. And those who, whose hearts have been changed, when the word of God falls in their hearts, it grows and bears fruit in lo- their lives because, because that's the nature and the power of the word of God. In fact, let me, let me put it this way. A changed heart plus the gospel equals new life. It's an immutable formula. When you have a changed heart that encounters the gospel, the natural, immutable result is new life. Because a changed heart will always receive the word of God and the seed of the word if it's planted in a good soil of, of a heart. It will, of a changed heart will always grow to new life. It is just, it's nature. It is immutable. A new life always springs forth from the awesome and powerful word of God that's been planted in a prepared heart and it will invariably bear fruit as a testimony that God has saved them. God changes hearts and a changed heart always produces a changed life and for this and, and all of this from from the changing of the heart I want you to hear me on this from from All of this, from from the changing of the heart to the growing of the seed, it is not the work of men because men can't change hearts and men can't grow seeds. We can't make them grow. All that's 100% the work of God, which then is a truth that is both freeing and terrifying all at one time. It's it's, it's a a truth that is hope-inspiring, but at the same time heart-wrenching. Because on the one hand, God being in control gives me real security, right? But on the other hand, we wrestle with that because if God is in control, then we're not. And if there's something that we mere mortals struggle to, to give up, is control. I want to be in control of my life. I want to be in control of my own finances. I want to be in control of my career. I want to be in control of my marriage. I want to be in control of my kids. I want to be in control of my own destiny. I want to be in control of whether or not I even want God or not. I want to be in control of all of that. But if God is sovereign and in control, then we are not. And that scares us. And, and, not, and not just for us, but for other people, because we want everybody else to be in control, too. And I want you to understand that. right? Everyone wrestles with this at some point. How do I reconcile God's control and my free will? How, how, what does it mean for me in my life? What does that mean for my family? If God is sovereign, then it means that I'm not, and, and, and neither is anyone else. How does, how, how does God have a plan, and I still have a choice? I want you to realize that, that we all wrestle at some point with this truth. This is something that I've wrestled with for many years in my, my own life. In fact, pastor and author John Piper wrestles with this idea while he was at seminary. He, 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 he never really had uh, embraced the, the doctrine of God's sovereignty until he got faced with it in a class on Romans in, in seminary. And he was so belligerent and angry about the truth. He went up to his pastor and he held up his, he held up his ink pen and he was like right in front of his face. And he goes like this. He goes, I dropped that. I did it, not God. As if that proved the point that God is not sovereign. And he said that he spent an entire semester in tears because his understanding of God and how God saves people changed. So we all, I want you to know, we all wrestle with this at some point. And I think that Jesus understands the fact that we're going to wrestle with some things. There are going to be some things that... That, that Jesus knows that we're, that we're going to struggle to hold on to and wrap our heads around. I mean, think about the Trinity for crying out loud, right? And, and, and so Jesus knows that we're going we're to struggle with this, and I think that's why Jesus doesn't leave us here with just the parable of the sower, but he follows us up with these three parables to help us understand. In fact, these three parables expand this idea of God's sovereignty In salvation, remember Jesus said, he said, if you're going to understand these other parables, you need to understand the first one. And the reason is, is because all of these parables are connected to each other. They expand and explain the central message that Jesus was getting to in the parable of the sower. They take the idea of God's word in salvation and they deepen the the understanding so so that not only do we understand it, but then we also can, can actually experience it with great joy and hope. So turn with me to verse 26, and let's explore this together. Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter the seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. So obviously this is this is a continuation of the idea, you know, related to, to the sower. Right? We have, you know, here, the kingdom of God being compared to a man who, who scatters seed on the ground. And, and I think before we move on, we should really take a moment and get clear about what the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is the realm of salvation. The kingdom of God, right, and, and those who enter the kingdom, they, they do so by faith and repentance. And those who enter into the kingdom of God, they have eternal life and adoption as one of the children of God. And that kingdom, and that new life, as Jesus says, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. The sower sows the word of God. It's an idea that we're already familiar with. But then look at what it says next: He sleeps and rises. Right? He goes to bed. He gets up. Night and day is night and day is what Jesus says. And what this is is this is a picture of someone basically living their normal life. He goes out and he sows the seed and he continues on with the rest of his life. He cooks his food. He takes care of his family. He gets the oil change. He takes the kids to the dentist. Right? He gets up in the morning. He goes to bed at night living his normal life. That is the picture here that Jesus is painting. And, what, and notice what it says. While he's living his normal life, while he's doing his normal thing, the seed sprouts and grows and he knows not how and, 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 and this is important for us to understand. He sows the seed, because that's his part, and then he carries on with the rest of his life, and then the seed does what the seed is supposed to do. It grows, and he doesn't know how. He doesn't know how it works, right? He just knows that it works. You, you, you understand that, right? And, and this is important because we get so caught up in what we know or what we don't know about the Bible. Right? We get so hung up about being able to answer every question, and we get so worried you know, that, that we don't know all the answers, and that somebody might reject us, and we get all tangled up in our, in our own walk right, with God, trying to walk in our own strength. At times, we're moved to inaction and sharing the hope with other people. Right? You don't have to understand all of the answers. You don't have to know exactly how it works. You just need to sow the seed. You just need to share the gospel. You just need to tell people about Jesus. You need to invite them to, to church or your Bible study. You just need to sow the seed. And if it falls on fertile soil, guess what? It'll grow. It'll grow. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, one of my very favorite verses in the entire Bible, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. To everyone who believes. The gospel, not you, not me, not some hotshot preacher, not some church program. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The power of salvation, the power to save souls resides in the word, it resides in the message. The power of God is in the gospel, and it is powerful enough to save all, hear me, all who believe. Well, who are those who believe? They're the ones who had their hearts changed by God. The gospel, when it falls on the heart that has been changed by God, has the power all by itself to spring up new life and grow all on its own. In fact, look what Jesus says next. He says in verse 28, the earth, or the ground, produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Now, this phrase right here by itself in, 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 in this verse here in the Greek is from the Greek word automate, which is exactly the same word we get in our English for automatic or to automate. And we already know kind of what, what that means. It, it means that it happens by itself. It happens automatically. When the seed of, of God's word falls into the soil of a changed heart, it is automatic it's not something we have to manufacture. It's not something that we have to push and cajole. right? It isn't something that we even need to understand. It happens by itself. He says first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And when, when, when the grain is ripe, at once he puts the sickle because the harvest has come. There is a clear expectation that if the seed is planted in the right soil, that it will automatically grow and it will bear fruit. It's it's just expected. Why? Because God is sovereign and he's mighty to save. That's why. Which means what we need to do is we need to sow the seed and we need to watch for growth and, and, and watch for the fruit. That's what we do, right? We, we, we do this laboring with the understanding that if we're faithful to sow the word of God, the gospel, then the gospel will do what God intended for it to do. It will grow up and bear fruit of salvation. And so we, like this man, sow the seed and we live our lives and we watch with the understanding that it is God that makes it grow. It is God that makes it grow. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, I planted apollos watered but god gave the growth so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only god who gives the growth he who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor for we are god's fellow workers brothers and sisters we i don't want you to miss that we are god's fellow workers we sang about that this morning, that we, we are the laborers in the vineyard. Right? It is by the will and God's good pleasure. Okay? It is, hear me, please. It is by God's will and good pleasure that he's invited us, all of us, into his work. That we're called to participate in this redemptive work. But understand, we don't labor in vain. Why? Because it's God that gives the increase. It is God who grows the seed. It is God who prepares the soil, which means if we are faithful to sow the seed, we are guaranteed to be successful because God is in control and not us. Now you might say, Well, I do. I faithfully sow the seed. And I just can't see any results. I've been I've been sowing the seed and I keep telling my dad about Jesus and nothing happens. Nothing's changed. I keep ministering to all the kids in my neighborhood, and nothing. And I keep inviting my coworkers to church, and nothing seems to happen. I'm sowing the seed, but, I, but nothing seems to be coming of it. Well, the very next parable, then, should be an encouragement to you. Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed and how it grows. And, and this might be a little bit of an odd expression, even confusing to some people because most people realize or, or relate the mustard seed to Jesus talking about having the faith of a mustard seed, where Jesus is talking about a quantity of faith and not so much a quality of faith. Right? But, but Jesus is actually making a different point here in a very deliberate one. And to understand this point, what we need to do is we just need to have a little perspective. Right? You see, a mustard seed is, is about one to two millimeters. It is a very, very, very small seed. In fact, the picture here kind of gives us a sense of that scale. It's, it's tiny, right? And, 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 and it, was, it was this smallest seed Right? This was the smallest seed that the people in Judea would have, would, would have encountered. It's the smallest known seed to them at the time. And the mustard seed, even though it's so small, can grow up to a mustard plant that eventually grows into a bush that actually becomes like a small tree. Right? In fact, some mustard bushes can, has, have, can get as high as 30 feet and, and, and nearly that big around in diameter. And if you think, if you think about the scale of that, right, that's, that's massive, Right? A mustard plant big enough that could literally fill up the space in this room coming from this tiny, little, bitty, insignificant, almost barely visible seed. You see, the idea here is that this tiny, little, insignificant seed has the power to produce something completely out of proportion to itself. And that's the point that Jesus is making. The kingdom of God And the prospects for salvation for those that you care about and to those that you love might seem so tiny and insignificant and maybe even feel pointless. But sown in the right ground and given enough time, that little seed can explode with growth beyond what you can possibly imagine. And what you need to understand and trust is that God, God is the one who grows his kingdom. It is God who provides that growth. He's the one who gives the increase. He's the one that has the power to take your efforts of sowing as, as ineffective and as insignificant as it, as it may feel at times to transform that into something greater than you can possibly imagine. But, but the problem is, for us, is we just don't see it that way. It's a, it's a problem perspe- of perspective for us because when we think about sowing the seed, we, th- we think about people, people like Billy Graham and his evangelistic crusades as if that's the standard for us. That we got to go out and replicate what he's doing. But that's not the standard. Billy Graham is the exception, like the Apostle Paul, rather than the rule. I mean, think about this. We all know who Billy Graham is, but do you know who it was that led him to the Lord? No. Do you know who it was that led that guy? How about that guy before that and before that? Right? The reality is we don't know. The Christian history is full of small mustard seed-sized contributions to the kingdom of God that God has the power to grow beyond your imagination. William Carey, I don't know if you're familiar with that name, but you should be. He is the father of the modern missionary movement. We do missions the way we do because of William Carey. And, and he famously is one that said, the future is as bright as God's promise. And he, and he says, he says expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Again, he's a very famous Christian man who has advanced the kingdom of God in big, tangible ways. But what most people don't realize is that when he went to India, he labored for seven years, seven years, before he saw his first convert. Seven years in full-time ministry in a hostile country that's hostile to the gospel. Seven years before he saw his first convert. All right, and then he shared the gospel for 40 years with really a minimal amount of fruit for his labor. Like, th- we weren't, we're not talking about, in his time, a massive move of God. In fact, at one point in his life, it might have seemed like his efforts were in vain or that he was wasting his life. But the thing is, is his converts created other converts who created other converts. Not to mention his influence in the world of missions has resulted in the, in the millions and millions and millions of people being saved though he might not have ever really known that in his own lifetime. The thing that you and I need to understand is God is, is the one at work. And it is through us, right? And, and because of that, your efforts to sow the seed, they are never, ever in vain the impact that you make on the kingdom, that tiny little mustard seed of an impact, God can can, and he does take that and grow that into something more incredible than you can imagine. We just need to keep doing what we're called to do and trusting that God is at work in his kingdom. And though our seemingly insignificant efforts seem to be coming to nothing, we just trust that God will grow that. In fact, Jesus Insists that we do. Verse 21, Jesus said, is a lamp, by the way, this is the inspiration for this little light of mine. Jesus said, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or a bush, bushel or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And understand, the lamp in this illustration is Jesus. That's what he's referring to. He's referring to himself. He is the lamp. He is the light of the world. He is the one who brings people out of darkness. And he says the lamp, is it to be put under a basket or literally a bowl? That's, it's a two-gallon bowl, right? I mean, think about that. If you have a small oil lamp, and what do you do? What happens when you put a bowl over it? You have darkness, right? The light's not there. He says, is a lamp to be put under a basket or under a bed where no one can see it? And the answer is obviously no. That's dumb, Jesus, right? It's to be placed on a lampstand. It's to be set up where the light can shine so others can see. Jesus, the light of the world, is to be prominently displayed, right? He is to be visible in our lives. We are to shine the light of Christ in the dark world. Christian, understand this, it is God's plan to use us to reveal Christ to the world. It is part of God's sovereign plan that you and I sow the seed and shine the light of Christ so others can see his goodness by his grace because it is, it is through our sowing and our shining that God has by his will and his good plan and purpose that he has chosen to expand the kingdom. It is through you and me. Again, we are co laborers with God. And and there's a clear expectation in this text that we don't hide the light of Christ away from everyone else because because we're afraid to be rejected. That we don't hide the light of Christ simply because we don't know all the answers. We don't hide the light of Christ because we just don't wanna bother anybody and be a pest. No, we're to put Christ prominently in display in every area of our life so that all those who are in the darkness can, can see that those who are in sin, right, and, and that their sin is hidden from sight will be exposed so they can understand what the real problem is. And the real problem is that they're not good people who occasionally do bad things, but they are corrupt, broken sinners who only do good that they do by the grace of God and they need desperately to be healed, and so we're to shine the light of the gospel so that nothing can be hidden that prevents people from seeing the truth. As the apostle John says in, in John chapter 1, verse 4, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the power to transform lives. Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the one, only hope of the world. Jesus is the one. And our job is simply to make him known and shine the light of Christ in our lives for other people to be able to see. And then he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For, those, for the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, this is the part of the parable that kind of gets tricky and and almost a little bit muddy because because if you're familiar with the Bible, you might feel like Mark has actually taken several other things that Jesus has said in other places and kind of combined them together to save space, but that's not what what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is actually making another point. In fact, the key to understanding this part is to recognize the repeated call over and over again to hear and pay attention. After Jesus tells the, the parable of the sower, what does he say? He who has ears to hear, let him hear, right? And again, he says it right here. And then he says, pay attention to what you hear. And in the very same breath, he says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, right? This is not a mistake, right? Because this is what he says about measuring. This is a proverb that relates to, in essence, you get what you give, right? You reap what you sow. And what Jesus says, is, is saying, and what he's doing is he's relating that concept to our hearing. And what he's saying is if you sincerely hear the word of God and you pay attention and you begin to walk in that truth, you will grow in your spiritual strength and wisdom and blessing. And the more you listen and the more you pay attention and put into practice what the word teaches, the more you will receive spiritually because the word, as we have seen over and over again, what does it do? It grows and it bears fruit. And what Jesus is saying is the more you take in, the more it grows. But also the opposite is true. The less you take in, the less that you will see and actually begins to to fade away. And this is important to how how, how this relates to how we sow the seed and make Christ known because the best way for you to sow the seed is to have seed to sow. The more seed that you have, the more you have to sow. What I mean by that is the more of God's word that you have in you, the more of God's word you have to give. Does that make sense? And the more of Christ's light you have in you, the brighter the light that you have to shine. Okay? The more that you take the word of God into your life, the more you read it and study it and meditate on it, and the more you're going to have to offer to those around you, and the more that you know Christ, the more you're able to make him known. With what measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. The more you invest in yourself in the Word of God, the more God will equip you to sow the seed. I hope you understand that. The way that you grow in effectiveness, then, in in, in sharing the hope of God's kingdom, isn't to become a better speaker. The way to grow in your effectiveness isn't to suddenly become more confident. The way you grow in effectiveness and sowing the seed is to spend more time in the word, learning and growing and applying what it says. And, and the reason for that is very simple. You are part of God's sovereign plan to bring salvation to the world. And you do that by sowing the seed. And I want you to take that in. Like, if, if there's, if, this is one of the things if you are holding on to, this, this should be one of the things, okay? You, right there in your chair. Even though you might not feel like it, and some days your life feels like sideways and insignificant, you are part of God's sovereign plan, the plan he has full control of. You are part of that plan. That there are people that God plans to reach through you, and he will equip you, and he will prosper you, and, and, and he will give you the strength, because you cannot fail. You cannot fail, right? If you sow the seed, you cannot fail. And the reason why you cannot fail is because God is the one that's sovereign and in control. And his plan and his purpose and his will will come to pass. And it's he that strengthens your hand. It is he who is with you. It is he who gives you the success to your efforts. It is he who who changes people's hearts and causes the seed to grow. God is sovereign over salvation. And brothers and sisters, hear me, that is good news. The sovereignty of God is good news because first of all, my salvation then doesn't depend on me. And praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord that my salvation doesn't depend on me because if it did depend on me, I'd be in trouble right now because I have no ability within myself except to mess things up. Hear me. If I could lose my salvation, I would. If there was a possibility for me to lose my salvation, if I... I would lose it. And I'm just being honest because I know me. I know what I'm capable of. I'm capable of making a mess in a hurry. I know my own heart. But praise the Lord, my salvation never has and never will depend on me because it's completely him. And because of that, I'm completely secure in my salvation. I know that he's going to change me. I know that he's going to grow me. I know that I'm safe in his hands. I've been rescued by his power and I'm kept safe by his power. Secondly, it's good news because the salvation of others doesn't depend on me. Y'all should praise the Lord for that. Because if, if everybody else's salvation depended on me, guess what? We all go into hell. Right? Because, because I can't do it. Only God can. In fact, last week, one of the messages, um, after the message, the overwhelming response that I received from people was that they come to me and they said, you know, Thank you for that message. It really helped me because, because, because now I understand that God is in control of salvation. And it took that responsibility off of me. And it removed from me a bunch of guilt that I've been carrying around for years, wondering if I was saying enough or doing enough or helping enough, you know, to get people saved in, in my life. And it took the weight off my shoulders. And because of that, right, I, I feel new life because I've been carrying around this burden that was weighing me down and it was stealing my joy. Brothers and sisters, God is responsible for salvation. Not you, not I, because you and I cannot bear under that weight. You, were, you and I were not meant to carry that burden. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? Yes, we should deeply desire for others to come to Christ. Yes, we should hope beyond hope beyond hope that those we love and care about turn to Jesus and be saved. Yes, our hearts should break for the loss. Yes, we should be continually sowing the seed and loving people and praying and never giving up on them. But praise the Lord that their salvation is not in our hands because we don't have the power to save anyone. Hear me on that. If it were up to you to bring someone to salvation by what you do, you would fail because there isn't enough in you to bring someone to salvation. You couldn't even save yourself. Right? Now you might be thinking, well, then, so what then? So you're saying what I do doesn't matter then? I mean, if God is sovereign of this, what, what I'm doing doesn't matter then, right? No, I'm saying the exact opposite of that. It's only because God is sovereign that what, what I do even matters. It's precisely that God has ordained for you and me to sow the seed and love people and to pray for them and, and, for other, and, for other, and to not give up on people that what we actually do actually matters. Right? What you do matters not because of what you do. What you do matters is because you are an instrument in the hands of almighty God who is using you in what you do to bring hope to the world. I hope you understand the difference there. What you do matters, not because because of what you do. What you do matters is because, because of the one who's doing it through you. You are an instrument in God's hand who is using you in what you do to bring hope to the world. God is the one who is giving power to what you do. And because it is God who uses you and empowers you, you and I can live confidently walking and sowing the seed because when I do my part that God has called me to do I am always successful regardless of whether I see the results or not I do the, I do the things that God calls me to do, I sow the seed, I love the people like Christ did, I pray for them faithfully and never give up on them all right? and, and, and then I'm going I'm to be successful because the results don't depend on me whether people reject the gospel or believe unto salvation, the results don't depend on me. They depend upon God. If I do the part that he calls me to do. He gives the increase. Which means what, whatever happens is his will. Right? And that means I'm, that I'm successful if I do what I'm called to do, trusting that God will do his part because his will will certainly be Because he's the one who changes hearts. He's the one who grows the seed. He's the one who who grows his kingdom. He's the one who uses us as an instrument in his hand to change the world. And because he is in control, his plan will never, ever, ever fail. And because we trust in him, we will never be put to shame. The sovereignty of God is good news. Now, understand, I don't preach this stuff because this is what I learned in my academic career. You know, career or my theological training at a university. And I don't believe, I don't preach this stuff because there's a bunch of other preachers I like who preach this stuff. I believe this and I preach it because it is evident in the scripture and the context of scripture bears it out God is sovereign. But I also preach it because it's a reflection of my own life. I grew up thinking that I was a Christian simply because I was told we're Christians. I mean, we went to church once in a while, and I had a grandmother who took me to church, and she told me all kinds of Bible stories, right? And, and, and she taught me how to sing some songs, even like this little light of mine. And she, she told me over and over again that Jesus loves you. And I had my own Bible, right? I would pray, you know, at meals. I'd pray at bedtime. But I was not a believer. I didn't, I didn't know the gospel, I didn't understand the gospel. I didn't even know who Christ was. I mean, I knew his name, but I didn't know him. He was like Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy, as far as I was concerned. He was just something that I was taught, right? Like, like kids are taught, that you just grow out of. And so my life bore no reflection of Christ at all. I was simply a worldly child who became a worldly teenager, who became a worldly adult. The love of God was not in me. And then one day, my faith, whatever little faith that I thought that I had, was tested, and I fell away completely rejecting Christ. I completely disavowed anything that I'd ever believed, and I became hostile to all things religious. I thought people who had faith were weak-minded and stupid. I was hardened, and I was bitter. My heart was rock hard. In fact, to give you a glimpse of my hardened heart, I'm gonna share with you a story that I hardly ever tell because it, it, it makes me deeply ashamed. But it also reflects who I was at one point in my life. When I was an atheist decades ago, I was in a relationship with a woman who was still married. And I rationalized it away because guess what? When I met her, she had already left her husband. They weren't together, they weren't living in the same house, they were already on the outs. Right? So I thought it was fine. But the fact is that she was still married and had a, had a daughter. And here I was carrying on this relationship with this, this woman. And, and, and it was a worldly relationship. And, and soon she and I moved in together. Because why not? I mean, I didn't have a moral compass. I mean, I didn't think there was anything wrong with that. I didn't think marriage was even that important or such a big deal. And so everything seemed fine to me, just like it did to the rest of the world. And then one day her husband... Begged and asked that he that if he could come over and talk with us. Understand, right? We've been living together for months at this point, and and he's begging to sit down and and talk with us. And and because she still had feelings for him, she agreed. And so this guy comes over to my house, right? And 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 I'm ready for a fight. But he is very humble, and he is very respectful, and I am full of pride and arrogance, and I am puffed up because guess what? She's mine and she ain't yours. But as the conversation goes on, he begins to express to his wife that he desperately wants her back. And even after everything, even including a relationship with me, and, and, and at this point I'm growing angry because I thought, how dare he walk into my house? That's how hard my heart was that this man is fighting for his marriage, and I'm going to be like, How dare he? And then he takes out his Bible and he begins to cite scripture about marriage and what God thinks about it, and I lost it. Not only was I angry, but I became belligerent and sarcastic, and I told him how pathetic he was as a man and how stupid he was for believing that there was a God, especially the, the pathetic God of the Bible. And he was begging and pleading with tears in his eyes. He was begging for his wife to come home, telling her that he would forgive her for everything. And understand, I had not one bit of compassion for this man. None. No compassion in my heart for him. I felt no remorse for my sin. I felt no remorse for for living with this woman. I felt no remorse for how I was treating him. I felt no sympathy at all for his heartbreak. I was embittered, and I was hateful. Brothers and sisters, my heart was, was stone cold. I was the most selfish, vile, hateful person imaginable. There was no life in me. I mocked this man for his faith. I mocked him for his attempts to save his family. I mocked his tears. I mocked his pain. I was dead, dead. Completely spiritual dead. There was no life in me at all. The faith that I said that I had when I was young was not faith. I had never known God, and I never even cared. I didn't want God. I was dead in my my trespasses, and and I was a child of of wrath. And guess what? I was fine with that. Do you understand that? I, I, I had no want for God. I had no need for him. And the thought of stooping intellectually to the level where I could even believe in God was just not even possible for me. When you hear the term wretch, I was a full living embodiment of that. I was totally, completely depraved. And if, if God, right, I want you to hear me, if God would have left me that way and I would have died as I would have marched off to hell, all of creation would praise the Lord because his justice would have been done on me. All of creation would praise the Lord for his justice because that's exactly what I deserved. His justice is what I deserved. If I would have died in my sin, God would have been glorified because his justice would have been done on me. And if you were in heaven at the time, I was being sent off to hell. You would have praised the Lord, too, for his justice. You would have praised the Lord for consigning me to hell because that's exactly what I deserved. I deserved that. I am a sinner on par with Hitler himself. But for some reason that is unfathomable to me, God decided, not me, not my free will god decided by by his own mercy to have grace on me god by his grace decided to have mercy on a horrible broken pathetic wretch like me how is that even possible it's only possible because god is sovereign and in his sovereignty and by the counsel of his own will, he chose to have mercy on the likes of me. And he brought the plow of conviction into my heart by the, by the Holy Spirit to change me. Now, most of you have already heard the story of me and Carson and my family. And you know what God did to open my eyes to my sin and in his existence. God plowed my heart with a plow of conviction Right? He's the one who removed from me my heart, my dead, cold heart of stone and put in me with me a living heart of flesh. He's the one who plucked out all the things in my life that choke out the word of God. God changed my heart. And then, and then somebody invited us to a Bible study and I heard the gospel that I heard many times before, but I heard it that time and the seed of, of, of the word fell on my newly changed heart and the word took root and I repented and I believed I really believed the gospel and my life was completely transformed. I was born again. I I was a new creation. I'm radically transformed. But not by me or anyone else, but by the sovereign hand of God. He rescued me. He changed my heart and he caused the seed to grow and my life and my family's life has been forever changed. Now understand, God absolutely did use people in my life. There were people all my life who sowed the seed of God's word over and over and over and over again. There were people who were gracious to me and showing the love of God. That man sat in my living room was gracious to me and, and loving to me even though I persecuted him. And, and I found out that people had been praying for me for years and, and, and praying that God would do what? Change his heart. And quite a few people refused to give up on me. In fact, years later, I ran into a high school best friend who was a Christian when we were young. And I asked him, I said, would you have ever imagined I would ever become a Christian, a believer? And he's like, of course I did. I've been praying for you since we're in eighth grade. I'd never give up on you. God uses all kinds of, he used all kinds of people in my life and their mustard side seed investments in me and he used those people in my circumstances to finally break me and to change me, to, to go from a man who despised God to someone who sold out for him and it's all in for his mission. Brothers and sisters, the Lord, praise the Lord for God's sovereignty because Because of that, what you do to share the hope of Christ matters. Because he is sovereign, you're not wasting your time. And because he is sovereign, you cannot fail. And so now you know a little bit more about me. But my prayer is that you know more about God and his power to save. And so in light of that, power to save the application is exactly the same. We're to sow the seed. And we're to keep sowing and keep sowing and keep sowing and keep sowing and keep sowing, sowing till the day you die or Jesus takes you home. That is your obligation, Christian. It is not for you to know what, what condition the soil is. Your job is to do one thing. Sow the seed, sow the seed, sow the seed. And then you need to love the people. We love everyone. Everyone. Even our enemies, Jesus said, we love. Even those that are persecuting us and making fun of us for our faith, we love. And then we need to pray. Specifically, in earnest, that God would change their hearts because only God can do that part. And I promise you, right, it might not ever seem like someone's heart will ever change, but God, I'm telling you, if he can change anybody's heart, if he can change this guy's heart, he can change anyone's heart. And we never, ever give up on people. We just continue to walk in faith, knowing that we are going to be successful because God is good and he is righteous and he is just and we will trust that he's going to do what he's going to do. We don't give up. And then we finally just trust that God will be God. Again, someone said, you know, I'm not sure I understand this sovereignty thing and it kind of makes me worried. I said, what you need to understand is God is good, God is right, and God is just. And you need to trust in him. Your, Your struggle with the sovereignty of God is your struggle to just trust that God knows what he's doing and that he is good enough to do what is right. The thing is, I can promise you, all of us, that when we get to heaven, that we will stand forever and ever and ever and we will look at everything that's happened throughout history and we'll go, praise you, Lord, for the counsel of your will. You are so good. You were so right and you were so just. Brothers and sisters, let us continue to sow the seed, love the people, pray that God changes their hearts, never give up on them, and then trust for God to be God. If we do that, if we do that, we will see a move of God like you have never imagined. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word causes me to to wrestle. I thank you that that through that wrestling I I learn more about you and know more about you and I come to see a bigger picture of who you are and I let go of who I am to grab hold of who you are. I praise you, Lord God, that as I look back at the man that I was before, that I'm not him. I'm not him. I praise the Lord that I'm not him. Praise the Lord, you saw fit to change me. Of all the mysteries that we wrestle with, the one that I can't get over, Lord, is you would send your son to die for a guy like me. But I don't care. I don't care that I don't understand it. I believe it and I hold on to it. And I'm depending on it, Lord. And I'm depending on you to change all of us and turn us into the image of your son. And that, Lord, you would come soon, Lord, and make all things right. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.